Before my time of illness and being set aside, we had begun to study the little epistle of Paul to Philemon. As I said earlier, it's an interesting letter in that it is a genuine letter from Paul, but to an individual. I should say that I don't think the Apostle Paul ever thought that this letter would be preserved. That's just my conviction. Uh, There's no reason for me to believe that the Lord had given him the information that this letter would be kept and that would be for future generations. When he wrote it, he probably had no idea that it would find a place in the canon of Scripture in the Christian church. The occasion that called forth the writing of this epistle was Paul's wish to plead with a friend of his called Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave called Onesimus. You should always study together Philemon and the epistle to the Colossians. These two epistles belong very much together because Philemon was a member of the church at Colossae, and there's definite overlap between the two epistles. But Philemon is not himself mentioned in any other place in the New Testament. Onesimus, however, is mentioned in the aforementioned letter to the Colossians, and he's mentioned as coming from Colossae. Colossians chapter 4 verse 9 tells us that. And this individual, Archippus, who's mentioned at the beginning of Philemon in the greetings in verse 2, described as our fellow soldier, he is also given a very special charge in the letter to the Colossians. In chapter 4 verse 17, there's mention made of his ministry that he must fulfill in the Lord. We should notice also that five Christians, namely Epaphras, Mark or Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke or Lucas, who send greetings to Philemon, are also mentioned in the latter part of the letter to the Colossians. So it's reasonable to assume that these two letters were written at probably the same time. Paul was a prisoner as he wrote this letter to Philemon. He mentions this in verse 1, and I think it's interesting how he describes himself, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You might expect him to write, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans. Paul, a prisoner of the Roman Caesar or the Roman authorities, but he doesn't. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, because he recognizes that in the providence of God, the situation that he was in was because of his association with Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have been in prison if he hadn't have been a faithful preacher of the gospel. If he had not been an outspoken Christian, he never would have been in prison in the first place. That's why he was there. So he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. There's another sense in which we can think of the believer as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He has arrested us by his grace. He's brought us to himself. And in a sense, we are those who are gladly imprisoned by Christ 
serving him. He is our master. But Paul's a prisoner as he writes this letter. And while there are some students who associate the epistles to the Colossians and Philemon and also the letter to the Philippians with an imprisonment that Paul might have had at Ephesus, the general consensus of commentators would place these letters in his first Roman imprisonment. And so that would date these letters somewhere around AD 62 or 63, maybe a little more than 10 years after the letter to the church at Thessalonica. But the letter itself, the letter to Philemon, is a really revealing letter. Careful study of this short epistle will enable us to recreate the story of Paul's conversion of Philemon, which probably happened during his ministry in Ephesus, and also to, in our mind's eye, imagine the meeting together of Paul and the runaway slave Onesimus. That happened in Rome. We don't know how it happened. We don't know what brought that about. But it resulted in the conversion of Onesimus to Christ. And it led to his decision to return to his master, Philemon. It's often been said that large doors swing on small hinges. There are things that happen in our lives that we don't understand. We have no idea why it should be the way that it is. And yet we have to understand that God has a purpose in it. And that purpose may may be far greater than we could ever imagine. I can just think of this young man, Onesimus. He's run away from his master, Philemon. He's probably stolen some of his goods. If we read between the lines here, he owes plenty to his master. But he's made his way to the big lights, as it were, of the city of Rome. And while he's there, he probably recognizes he has no friends. There's nobody that he really knows there, but he does know about the Apostle Paul. And somehow or another, I would think he makes his way to the prison. I can't imagine that Paul got out of prison to meet Onesimus. It's something that happened in the prison. He was allowed access to Paul somehow, some way. And as a result of that meeting with the great apostle, he came to the Lord Jesus and was saved. If there was one reason only why Paul went to prison, that would be reason enough, wouldn't it? Just to see one young man converted. Just to see one young man brought from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. It was well worth it for Paul to be in prison. But the letter to Philemon actually, as we've been noting, throws a lot of light on the character of the Apostle Paul. Here's a man who could pen a massive letter to the Roman church, but he can also sit down and write to an individual and make a very personal and touching appeal to him. We will return to the main body of the epistle and that which really takes up most of the content. 
And that is Paul's appeal for Onesimus, who he says in verse 10, I have begotten in my bonds. That simply means that when he was in prison, God used him to become Onesimus' spiritual father. That's what that means. He won him to Christ when he was in prison. Then he makes this appeal that Onesimus might be restored to Philemon, that Philemon might forgive him, and that he might be willing to bring him back into the fold. But at the start of the letter, you'll see that there's mention made of grace and peace. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, this is a sort of a formal greeting. It's not an unusual greeting because each one of Paul's epistles opens with a similar pattern and with a similar formula of wording to this one. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone referred to it as Paul's signature tune. I just want to show you very quickly as we turn through the New Testament epistles that what I'm saying is the case. Romans chapter 1 verse 7. Notice this. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. You go to the next epistle, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 3, we find it once more. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to the second epistle to the Corinthians. Again, the first chapter, and this time verse number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. There it is again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a common greeting that Paul uses. Go to the next epistle, Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see it then in the next one, Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same in the next epistle, Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll find it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Middle of the verse, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, before we go any further, it's notable that Paul brings this greeting and includes within it the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. The greeting is from God, our Father, 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul believed in the doctrine of the co-equal and co-eternal persons of the Godhead. He believed that Jesus Christ is God, because in putting God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ side by side, he is showing forth his strong belief in the absolute deity of Christ. Now, we know that Christ is God. We know that because the Bible teaches it. But we also know it by experience. A preacher was once asked the question, how do you know that Jesus Christ is God? And his answer was very telling. He said, because what Jesus Christ did for me, only God could do for me. Jesus Christ is God. Now notice this greeting. Grace to you and peace. You'll not know this from reading the English, but this is a greeting that actually combines both Greek and Hebrew ideas. The Greek word charis for grace refers to the unmerited favor and undeserved kindness of God to sinners. That's what grace is. It's unmerited. You don't work for it. You don't deserve it. It's not something that you've got coming to you. It is the free, unmerited favor, the undeserved kindness of God to sinners. None of us deserves grace. If it were something that we deserved, it wouldn't be grace. Charis. That's the greeting. But then you have the Hebrew word shalom. You'll be familiar with that, no doubt. Jewish people use that greeting all the time, even in the modern day. Shalom. That's a greeting of peace. It's actually an umbrella term in the Hebrew for the blessing of God, because it holds within it such meanings as peace, wholeness, spiritual prosperity, and well-being. One commentator said, Grace is the unmerited favor of God which brings sinners to salvation in Christ, and peace is that state of spiritual well-being that flows from the receiving of that grace. So it's grace first, and then peace. So it's right to say you can't enjoy peace unless you've experienced grace. Unless you know the grace of salvation, you will never have peace with God or the peace of God in your heart. Now, Paul himself knew what grace was. He was converted from Judaism. He was a converted Pharisee. And he could say honestly in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. If I amount to anything at all, it's down to God's grace. I lay it at the feet of the grace of God, unmerited, undeserved favor. It was the grace of God that transformed Paul, that took him from being a blasphemer and a hater of Christ and a hater of the church and a persecutor of the church to being a preacher of that gospel that once he hated. And Paul being transformed by the grace of God, 
viewed his whole, his whole life's work in terms of accomplishing a course and a ministry that he'd received from the Lord Jesus to do what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was Paul's great ministry. This was his great aim and objective in life. To fulfill the ministry they had received of the Lord. To testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Now what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. The gospel is good news. It's the good news that though we are under God's condemnation because of our sin, we're going to hell because of our sin, yet there is a way out. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that's open that we may go in. At Calvary's cross is where we begin when we come as sinners to Jesus. This is the gospel. And Paul spent his whole life preaching that gospel and defending that gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. It is God's grace and God's grace alone which is the only lasting means of peace to a guilty sinner. You have to experience grace before you can ever experience peace. You know, people in this life are looking for ways to find peace. I have a friend back in Northern Ireland who spends his entire life trying to deal with the effects of drug addiction in young people. It's an epidemic. And it's not just young people. There are some very professional people, people with a lot of money, who are into the drug culture. And he tells me of some awful stories of lives ruined, of homes wrecked, of relationships destroyed because of drug addiction. And you ask yourself, why do young people do this? Why do they take pills? Why do they go after fentanyl? Why do they go after cocaine or whatever it may be? What is it? What's the attraction? Why do they do this? Because they see their friends overdosing and dying in hospital. Why do they do it? Well, we know why they do it. Because they think it's some way of finding peace. It's some way of getting a buzz. Some way of finding happiness in this life. But I tell you, it's a dead end. That's what it is. It's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac from which you may never, ever emerge if God does not have mercy. Peace. This is what people want, and they can't find it. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. It's the grace of God that sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins that bestows the peace of God that Philippians 4 verse 7 calls that which passes all understanding. Oh, the peace that Jesus gives. Peace I never had before for my way has brighter grown since I learned to trust him more. We sang that just a while ago. It is the 
grace of God alone, which is the only lasting means of peace. And you know that that's a peace that the world can't give. You'll not find it in the things of the world. You'll not find it in the pleasures of the world. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it was written by a very wise man, Solomon. He was the wisest man who ever lived. And he spends the second chapter enumerating all the things that he tried. He tried everything to get satisfaction. And when he had tried everything, he concluded all is vanity and vexation of spirit. In other words, it's a waste of time. It, it amounts to nothing. There's no peace to be found there. One of our hymns puts it like this. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee and found nowhere else. This is a peace that the world cannot give. And thank God is a peace that the world cannot take away. The Lord Jesus said this in John 14, verse 27, My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. There is a peace that comes about because of the application of the grace of God. It's the peace of sins forgiven. It's the peace in knowing that you're right with God. It's the peace in knowing that if God were to take the breath from your body tonight, you would go directly to heaven and to be with him rather than to hell. It's that peace of never needing to fear the judgment day and the wrath of God. It's the peace of knowing that you've got a home in heaven prepared for you by the Savior who loves you. There's no peace like that. And there's no way of getting it by, but by experiencing the grace of God, His undeserved favor. The grace of God in the gospel that Paul's talking about here is the only lasting and eternal source of peace. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, we noted this when we studied that epistle, he explained to the friends of Philemon something about the significance of Christ's cross. It was there Paul told them that the Lord Jesus Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1 verse 20. He made peace. How did he do that? Because he took away the sins that belonged to us and he was punished for them. And the wrath of God that was due to those sins, he bore that wrath so that there is no wrath left for those who trust in him. Paul could say to the Romans, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, by nature we're the enemies of God. We're against God and God is against us. I hear people talk about saying their prayers and I think to myself, God doesn't hear your prayers. God doesn't hear your prayers. You know why? Because you're living in sin. The Bible tells me in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, verse 1 actually, that 
God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. But, it says in verse 2, but your sins have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So you get down before God and you're praying to God. He doesn't hear you because you're not in a relationship with him. You're his enemy. So peace has to be made. Peace has to be made with God. How is it made? Through Christ. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. And we're justified by faith. And that's how we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's nothing like knowing. That you have received the grace of God. Unmerited, undeserved favor. I hear the words of love. I gaze upon his blood. I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace with God. Tis everlasting peace, sure as Jehovah's name. Tis stable as his steadfast throne, forevermore the same. Grace to you and peace, Paul said, from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's writing to a believer. He's writing to a man who has already experienced the grace of God in salvation. So what does he mean when he says to him, grace be unto you and peace? Well, it's grace that continues. You know, the Lord continues to give grace to his people. He continues to multiply unmerited favor upon us. I don't deserve anything from God, but yet he gives to me all things richly to enjoy. And Paul is wishing for Philemon that the grace of God that saved him might be continued to him in his life, that he might experience that grace from day to day, and that peace that comes from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ might continue to keep his heart and mind through Christ Jesus. See, there's an ongoing peace that we need. Sometimes our hearts are in turmoil because of things that happen in our lives. There are things that are calculated to disturb our peace. Things that are perhaps unforeseen. They blindside us. Things that we never expected to happen. And it causes great confusion and concern and consternation in our hearts. I talked about that this morning when I heard that news that my kidneys were shot, basically. That was a huge blow to me. I can't tell you how I felt that day when the doctor told me. I was stunned, absolutely stunned thinking there was nothing wrong with me, only to find out that I have what's called end-stage kidney disease. I'd never heard of that. But they were telling me about these numbers. There's, there's a thing called the GFR. And I can't tell you what that means, a big long word, but basically your GFR is supposed to be up around 100. If it gets down below 40 or down below 30, you're in some trouble. 
If it gets below 20, you're in major trouble. Mine was five. Five. That's right at the end stage of kidney disease. You're ready to go into renal failure, kidney failure. Now, when the doctor told me that, you can imagine how I felt. I was absolutely shocked out of my mind. I couldn't take it in. I still have trouble believing it. So the doctor said, you've got to go to hospital. You're going to have to go to the ER. You'll go home and pack a bag because they're going to keep you in. They kept me in for 11 days. At all kinds of treatments while I was there, all kinds of tests. And I was told every day, worse news than the day before. There's one doctor that would come around my ward, and every day I would see him. I used to dread talking to him. The one day he came in, I said, Doctor, you're probably a really good doctor, but I hate the sight of you. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, I don't really hate the sight of you, but every day you come around here, the, the news is worse than the day before. Because he told me if my numbers didn't increase... I was going to have to go on dialysis. Again, I couldn't believe that. And then he told me finally after the result of the biopsy, your future is dialysis three times a week for four hours at a time and a kidney transplant. That's it. Talk about something that disturbs your peace. That disturbed my peace, all right. I thought I was doing well. And then this bomb gets dropped into the middle of my life. What do you do when that happens? Well, you go back to the basics. You go back to the things that you know to be true. God's my Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is my elder brother. Christ died for me. The Lord loves me. The Lord cares for me. There's nothing that he's going to bring into my life that's not supposed to be there because it's part of his purpose to make me what he wants me to be. Now, it took me a while to come to that conclusion. But I can honestly say that the Lord has given to me grace and he's given to me great peace. And I know that all will be well. I don't know how it'll be well. I don't know how it will work out, but it'll be well. Because God is in charge and there are things that I don't have any control over and neither do you. Now Paul says to this man Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. That's a great thing, to be able to thank God for others. There's some people when you think of them, that's about the last thing you want to do is to thank God for them. But Philemon was somebody that he, Paul, thanked the Lord for and he remembered him in his prayers all the time. And there's a particular thing that he mentioned here that I want to mention. And it's in verse 5. Hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Philemon was a man who loved the Lord and who loved the Lord's people. He was a man of great faith in Christ. And his faith caused him to do great and good works toward the saints. The thing that I'm interested in here is that Paul didn't know this by his own experience. He didn't really know Philemon that well, obviously. 
But he says, I've heard of your love and your faith. I've heard about it. How did he hear about it? Well, because of people like Epaphras. He had heard about his faith and his love. And because of this, and these are the two things I want to say in the concluding remarks tonight, because of this, Paul had a thankfulness for what Philemon had commenced to do, and he also had a trustfulness because he was expecting Philemon to continue to be doing those things. Notice what he was thankful for, for what Philemon had commenced to do. What had he commenced to do? He says, I am hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. And verse 7, we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. That means the seat of their affections was refreshed by Philemon. Paul is giving thanks to God for Philemon's faith and for his love. And he is obviously thinking about the fact that every virtue that we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone. It comes from the Lord. That's why Philemon was the way that he was. It wasn't from himself. It was divine in its origin. God was working in Philemon's life. And so Paul thanked the Lord for that when he prayed for him. By the way, we should pray for one another. It is rather remarkable the number of times that Paul mentions in these epistles how he's praying for the saints, praying for them night and day in the, ter- in the case of Timothy, always praying for his fellow Christians. But when he says, hearing of thy faith and love, it means that Philemon had a reputation that had probably been related to Paul by Epaphras and perhaps even Onesimus the prisoner. Here's what Philemon is like. Here's the kind of Christian he is. I wonder what others say about us. I wonder if someone was to sum up your Christian life, what would be the summation of it? How would they sum up your experience and your testimony? Philemon was a man who loved Christ. And that's the acid test, you know, of Christianity. If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. It means let him be cursed and damned in the lowest hell. If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's the test of whether you're going to heaven or not. Do you love Christ? The Lord asked Peter three times the same question. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me. Peter, do you love me? It's not do you believe that there's such a person as Jesus. It's do you love Christ? Now, if you do love Christ, it's because he is the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. We love him because he first loved us. 
And as it is with love, so it is with faith. Paul mentions the faith of Philemon. Our catechism tells us that faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. But love and faith being toward the Lord Jesus Christ are the primary marks of a true Christian. Do you love Christ and do you believe in Christ? Have you got faith toward Christ? And this love and this faith is that which is reflected as well in our relationships toward all the saints as well. Someone said, love and faith don't and they cannot exist in a spiritual vacuum, but they have and they should have an earthly reflection and overflow to the Christian community, the church. If you love the Lord, you should love the saints of God. And if an individual professing Christian or a corporate Christian community like a church is not characterized by a degree of mutual love and faithfulness, then we have to doubt whether a genuine work of God has ever been wrought among such. Do such people really know the Lord? We have a vertical relationship to God but that also affects our horizontal relationships to one another. The Bible says it very clearly in 1 John chapter 4. Let me read these verses. Very challenging they are. 1 John, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 4 verses 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now I know at times as believers we can be un unlovable, in some of our ways. But nonetheless, we are commanded, aren't we, by Christ to love one another. That's how the world knows that you're a true Christian. That's how the Lord, uh, he says in his word, that's how the world knows that we're the true children of God. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. It's very clear, isn't it? But there's not only here a thankfulness for what Philemon had commenced to do, there's a trustfulness where Paul is very hopeful about what Philemon will continue to do. See, he, he has this thought of this man, and it's basically that this sharing of his faith will promote the knowledge of all the good that is ours in Christ. His ongoing testimony is going to have an effect. To share our faith with others is to share the blessings and the benefits of our faith. Martin Luther said, to know Christ is to know his benefits. And how could we ever begin to enumerate the good that is ours in Christ? 
Paul talked about to the Ephesians the unsearchable riches of Christ. He mentioned thanking God for his unspeakable gift. He said in Ephesians 3.19 that the love of Christ was that which surpassed knowledge. It's beyond knowledge and understanding. And theologians have tried uh, to make some sort of a, a categorization of the good that is ours in Christ. And for example, in the catechism of the shorter catechism, uh, there's a list of things that are benefits that we that have been effectually called partake of in this life. Benefits such as justification and, and adoption and sanctification and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. There are such blessings that we have and do experience in this life. One of the catechism answers says that in answer to the question, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Here's the answer. The benefits that in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. All things that we enjoy. We have the assurance that God loves us. How do we know He loves us? Because the Bible says it. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves even me. The little children's chorus puts it so well, doesn't it? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And they're not only the benefits that we have in this life, but they're benefits that we receive from Christ at our death. The Bible teaches us that the souls of believers, when they die, are made perfect in holiness, and they immediately pass into glory. What that experience is, I have no idea. Since my wife passed away in July, many times I've sat alone in my house at night and I've thought to myself, I wonder what she's doing right now. What is her experience right now? We're only given a little glimpse of that in the Scriptures. We speak of the land of the blessed, that country so bright and so fair, and oft are its glories confessed. But what must it be to be there? To be there, to be there. What must it be to be there? Oh, the joys that await the believer at death, to pass from this horrible scene of time into the immediate presence of Christ. What must that be? To be perfect in holiness, to not, not have to worry about sin anymore. Now we know that the bodies of believers, they're still united to Christ, but they're in their graves till the resurrection. 
Their spirits are with the Lord. Their bodies are in the grave. But there's going to be a resurrection. And at that resurrection, believers are going to be raised up in glory. They are going to be, according to Scripture, openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. And they're going to be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. All the good which is ours in Christ. But this is only the expectation of the believer. This is not the expectation of everybody. You know, many's a funeral you go to and you hear the preacher saying the same thing about everybody. Don't they? I'm talking about apostate preachers. Not men who believe the Bible, but men who don't believe the Bible. And they, no matter what way that person lived, and no matter how they died and the circumstances of it, they preached them into heaven. We're all looking forward to the resurrection and they're all there in the enjoyment of God. And yet those people, when they were on the earth, had no time for God. They had no time for the house of God, no time for the word of God, no time for prayer, no interest in the things of Christ. And then all of a sudden when they die, they're supposed to be, they want to be with God and they want to be worshiping him forever. I'm telling you, friends, that's a lie. That's a damnable lie. It is not true. The way you leave this life is the way you'll spend eternity. If you leave this life outside of Christ, you'll be outside of Christ for all the endless ages of eternity. Preacher, you're scaring me. I hope I am. I can't emphasize it enough. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Oh, Philemon was a true believer. He experienced grace from God the Father and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul could thank God every time he thought of him and prayed for him because he was a man of love and faith that he had toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Again, there are people who can't stand the company of Christians. Because Christians are these, you know, these old fogies, square people. They can't have fun. They don't enjoy anything. Long faces. So why would you want to be with people like that for all eternity? Because those people are the people who inhabit heaven. They're the only people who will be there. Worshippers of God and of Christ. All that you would consider if you need to your latter end tonight. And realize that there is no peace. Outside of the grace of God in the gospel. May the Lord bless his word to all of our hearts for his own name's sake.